This is Senator Cheryl Kagan, District 17, Montgomery County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, your best go-to source for news and insight on Maryland policy and politics. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here, Mako's Policy Associate, joined as always by my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin. Today we have a very special guest on the program, Mako's Legal and Policy Counsel, Les Knapp. Les, how are you today? Doing well, Kevin. Thanks. Today on the podcast, we're going to do a quick recap of MakoCon. We just got back from Ocean City. We had some great breakout sessions. The exhibit halls were packed. We'll get into that. We'll also talk about smart growth here in Maryland. And then we will talk about the pollution diet for the Chesapeake Bay, the TMDL. We'll talk about where we are and what can we look forward to on the health of the bay. So, Michael, Les, I mentioned that we just got back from Ocean City. I think it's fair to say that MakoCon was wildly successful. It was a record-breaking conference. It was tremendous setting and definitely, I mean, you could feel it in the hallway and around the convention center. Uh, the buzz is good. It's all, There's always a little bit of a bump during the election year where there's a little extra political intrigue and that lies in the background. But I just, I just think we landed in a good spot in a lot of ways. Uh, attendance was really, really high. I know we're constantly counting tickets for the meal events and so forth. We're going over our guarantees. Those are all good signs that that people are in, they're walking the halls, they're in the they're in the you know, the breakout sessions, they're out in the exhibit area and so forth, and and gaining an awful lot from it. Yeah, we had great participation. I saw folks from just about every county, if not every county. That's great to see. Les, what were some of your highlights of MakoCon? I mean, did you enjoy any sessions in particular? Anything that you want to talk about specific to MakoCon last week? So the theme for this conference was water, water everywhere. And given the importance of water, both in the environment, bay restoration efforts, land use, uh, public safety and flooding issues, there was a lot to talk about at this conference. I'll say the one panel that really stood out to me was the general session, the State of the Bay, that happened Friday morning. Uh, And I was impressed that after several nights of receptions and other potential events, both at the MAKO conference and offsite, there were enough, nearly 200 people packed the Performing Arts Center at the convention center to hear about the state of the bay from different perspectives. Yeah, on Saturday morning, same thing. We had our active shooter training that was full, and we also had a Kerwin Commission update. Of course, we talked a lot about that on the podcast. That's the commission that's reviewing education formulas and looking at Maryland's public schools. That session was packed too, Michael. Yeah, and I I was just really impressed walking the halls when we had a series of breakout sessions and you know, one of the things we're always trying to tend to is make sure you know, just that, you know, we as a staff, we have to make sure the nuts and bolts are working, the AVs up and running, all that sort of thing. But you, you look in every single room and we had five sessions going on at the same time in the middle of the afternoon. It's a beautiful, sunny day. The beach is literally, you know, a hundred yards away. And lo and behold, every single room is almost standing room only. We're the 80, a hundred people in each one of the different sessions. I, I think that, that speaks well to the work of our professional affiliates um, who, who drive an awful lot of, of that, that part of the conference backbone. 
And I think we'd be remiss if we did not mention our live podcast from the conference, Michael. We had Congressman Dutch Ruppersberger on. That was a wonderful time. Yeah, it was pretty nice. I mean, he's, a, he's a, an entertaining person to spend time with, and it was great. We were spending a couple minutes set up before we actually went on the air and basically said to him, so, you know, are there specific things that we should or shouldn't talk about? And he says, whatever, whatever comes up, it comes out. So I I sort of jotted that down. That's, that's exactly it. What just, you get him started and he gets on a roll with any topic, but that was, that's good times. It was a great time. You can always listen to that episode on our feed and you can listen to all of our podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google play, wherever you get them, they're available. So gentlemen, let's get into smart growth and less You are our expert here today on smart growth and the health of the Bay. We'll talk about smart growth first. Les, first of all, what is smart growth and why is it important? So really simply, smart growth is is basically a very simple idea and principle. And that is you try to concentrate where you grow in areas where you have existing or planned infrastructure. And this is the, I think, default planning method that is used by most local governments and most states throughout the United States at this point. In Maryland, smart growth really kind of took root in 1997 when you had legislation that created priority funding areas, which were kind of areas that were designated where the state would spend money for development and growth and created planning visions that local governments have to follow. Essentially, Our local comprehensive plans have to adopt these local planning visions and be based on them. And then your subsequent local zoning ordinances have to follow your comprehensive plans. Now, over time, since then, there's been a lot more legislation and regulations on smart growth. You've had indicators, growth tiers, and other uh, issues that you have to incorporate. And this has sometimes led to challenging or uh, contradictory uh, issues. So really smart growth means smart growth, which, you know, if you have infrastructure already set up, grow there, build around that existing infrastructure so you can preserve other lands and that you don't have urban sprawl all across the state or across your specific county. Correct. I think, you know, I was, I was working with Mako in the nineties when, when this came together and governor Glenn Denning really seized this as as a major issue that he got um, really in, in, involved with and became a national leader still is a national leader on on these topics there was there was some back and forth in 97 in that legislation about how do you draw the maps? Everybody can kind of agree that smart growth as a concept makes sense at the paragraph level. But when you put it into law and you say, this is the map that we're going to go to to say, we'll fund things in this part of the map, but not in this other part of the map. You know, who draws those lines matters an awful lot. Uh, there was guidance in the state law, but it ended up being a local designation, which was really important to county governments. We've always believed that it's your local planning commissions and your elected officials who understand the contours of your county better than the folks who have the demographics and the statewide mapping and so forth. Um, so we thought you know, having those 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 built locally and approved by, by the Department of Planning was the right way to put the cart and the horse, respectively. Yeah, so Les, speaking of that, what has been Mako's history with the evolution of smart growth in Maryland? So as a, as a core principle, MAKO has generally been supportive of the basic idea of smart growth. But where we have had issues in the past and where we have either sought um, changes or amendments to state laws 
is, as Michael alluded to, where there tries to be a one-size-fits-all, top-down style of approach that doesn't acknowledge the great diversity amongst Maryland's counties and municipalities. And that's classic Mako, right? I mean, one-size-fits-all, we talk about that a lot. One-size-fits-all does not work across the state. Yes, it's really one of our bread-and-butter issues. So really that's been Mako's issue with smart growth and the evolution of smart growth, but it sounds like the state and the counties have worked very well together to get us where we are today. Overall, yes, although certainly it it has been rocky at times. I I think currently uh, we are processing a lot of changes that were made um, in the last six or seven years that are being incorporated into laws, comp plans, and regulations, as well as looking forward with where we may go with both the state development plan and, and where smart growth can go in the future. So, Les, tell me about a better Maryland. What is a better Maryland? People have heard that term, and there's a website devoted to a better Maryland. This is through the state planning department. Talk about a better Maryland and how that plays into smart growth in Maryland. So just a little bit of history on this. Basically, uh, local comprehensive plans largely drive growth patterns in Maryland. That's where your zoning has to come from. And that's kind of if you had to look at a map of where each individual jurisdiction wanted to grow and how they wanted to grow, you would go to the comp plan. However, there is a law, and it's been in law for many decades, that the state has to create a state development plan, something somewhat similar to a comp plan, but it can be different. And for a long time, the state had never done that. However, several years ago in the uh, O'Malley administration, Uh, The Maryland Department of Planning did decide that they wanted to create the state's first ever state development plan based on that law. And that plan was called Plan Maryland and had some good points, but some bad points. And essentially, uh, it tried to do several things and ultimately, I think, failed. Even in the last year of the O'Malley administration, it was kind of shelved. And what the approach it took was kind of a top-down approach to say, we're going to kind of set some things at the top. And it it didn't do a good job acknowledging uh, local government diversity and the diversity of our jurisdictions. Uh, It did try to create what we call horizontal integration, and that was to get rid of some of these conflicting decisions Uh, at the state level. And that's something MAKO supports. We did register concerns with this top-down approach. And and ultimately, it also tried to create just another complicated layer of planning terms and land use designations on top of what we already have. And and ultimately, only about two counties of the 24 and 11 11 municipalities of the 157 municipalities in the states took the time and effort to try to do that additional complicated layer. And that's why I think Plan Maryland ultimately uh, tried to address some good issues, but but failed to do so. And one of the things that was strange, as I recall, about Plan Maryland was it wasn't in legislation. It wasn't proposed as a bill where you'd get a public hearing and there'd be a vote to adopt it. So you didn't have that broader buy-in. This was just sort of a report the Department of Planning you know, did some stakeholder input, but it was mostly at the conceptual level. And then here's a big draft. And then counties were responding to here's a big set of maps and, and a lot of discord about what it would mean. And then, you know, this giant report showed up. So that, that was also peculiar, you know, in, in the way it was on, it was rolled out. The adoption process was a little black boxy. 
So we know there were some issues with Plan Maryland, and the governor signed an executive order last year, right, Les, which directs the Department of Planning to coordinate with local governments and other stakeholders to prepare a revised state development plan that will replace Plan Maryland. Yes. Last year, Governor Hogan did sign an executive order formally repealing uh, Plan Maryland, although it had technically, in practice, already been shelved and ordered the Department of Planning to come up with a new plan called A Better Maryland. And this is what you hear about when you hear A Better Maryland. And for the last six months or so, the Department of Planning has been working uh, to figure out the directions they want to go. And they've been on a whirlwind listening tour where they've gone out to every single county, uh, sometimes multiple times, to hear and listen about what this plan should be and what it should not be. Yeah, and they were like also, the old whistle, it's like the old-fashioned whistle-stop tour. It's like yeah. town to town, county to county, let's hear what you all have been doing and how do we fit that into what we're trying to build. And they were also down at the summer conference talking about this, mm-hmm. getting even yeah. more feedback from the locals on what we'd like to see and how we'd like to work with the state moving forward. Yes, and from Mako's perspective, we're asking for two broad things. One, Keep that horizontal integration to the extent you can create better consistency among state agencies uh, and and reduce conflicts where maybe there's a plan where the Department of Planning says this makes a lot of sense. This is a smart growth project. We approve it as opposed to the Department of the Environment saying you can't do this because of environmental issues or the Department of Transportation saying we can't give you a road access there. So that scraps a whole project. We need to get all the state agencies on a more uniform page. So more communication, less red tape. Yes. And the second issue we want, which is critical, and again, this is part of MAKO's foundational mission, don't take a top-down approach. Build this plan from the bottom up. Make uh, The state has always been strong with smart growth since it adopted it. Local governments, counties and municipalities incorporate smart growth, and we have the comprehensive plans that reflect smart growth principles. Use those as the basic foundation. Take them, stitch them together, create your initial map from those local plans, and then if you need to build something on top of that, uh, to address various issues, do that. And so, it looks like a better Maryland is taking that approach. So our asks are being received receptively by planning, it sounds like, less. Yes. So that's a good thing. So better communication, less red tape, always good. And taking the existing comp plans from counties and building on those to create your model. The people on the ground and the counties who know their counties best, know where growth should be, where it shouldn't be, utilize those comp plans and then develop a plan off of those. That's the hope. Okay. So we are about 20 years in, in Maryland. We have this new state development plan coming. What can we expect moving forward? We've talked about what MAKO is going to ask for. You just heard an update at MAKOCon. We know they've been on the listening tour across the state. They're hearing from all the counties. What can we expect here moving forward? And is there a timeline for when this, they're going to finish this listening tour and actually put some pen to paper? So the listening tour is done. They're now correlating all of the comments and public feedback they've gotten. Uh, as well as, I think, starting to try to draft something. Uh, This is not a fast process. They expect a draft of a better Maryland to be done uh, sometime next year. We will see when that comes out. There will be obviously further Mm -hmm. time uh, for comment on that plan. 
Uh, so this is not something that is moving forward rapidly. At the summer conference, they did reveal that they're going to, based on the feedback they've gotten, MDP is going to base this plan around two core principles, two main focus, and that areas of focus, and that is economic development and the environment. And they're going to really build four themes throughout this plan. One, uh, looking at housing issues and making sure that there is a, available housing at a variety of income levels throughout the state. Two, collaboration that is both with local governments and potentially other states because Maryland borders many mm, yep, other states yep. and there's a lot of counties where this is a real challenge. So increasing that collaboration is a good thing. Three, and, and another big one that MAKO is supportive of, looking at things slightly from a regionalistic perspective. And that means approaching that, that what may work and for the counties in western Maryland may not be appropriate for counties on the eastern shore or in central Maryland. Again, trying to create some more flexibility and getting rid of this one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, This also can uh, lead to changes and recognitions that urban, rural, and suburban areas are very different and have very different needs. And while all of them should grow under the smart growth principles, how they grow and how you address transportation issues, density, and other things may be very different. Michael, that sounds like a trident approach. I mean, I think that's that's part of what we've been saying for some time is you, you drop a few pages into state law about how growth patterns ought to look. If you've written those few pages of state law thinking about a built-up, urbanized part of the state and the pressures and the gives and takes involved in growth in that part of the state, how can you expect one section of law like that to just also be the perfect overlay for a suburban area that has a totally different kind of growth pressure or a rural agricultural area, which again, totally different. And even, you know, the, the rural parts of Western Maryland versus the rural parts of the Eastern shore. I mean, the usability of land and the availability of water and so forth, the contours are really different. So, I mean, we're big into this one size doesn't fit all, but I I think, I mean, it it makes sense to be thinking of this way in, in more than one way. That makes a ton of sense. So really, Les, we, wanna, we want this trident approach, right? We don't want this just to focus on one area of the state or one type of topography. Is that right? Correct. As smart growth has now kind of hit 20 years old, actually 21, so if an adult it could legally drink. Uh, we want this. We mm-hmm. want to take smart growth, which we view as a spear, and turn it into that trident. Smart growth is generally based on sound principles, and it's worked fairly well for the urban areas of our state. But because of this limitations on some of the one-size-fits-all approach that we currently have, let's refine smart growth and turn it into that trident so we can have all three bullseyes for urban, suburban, and rural growth. So that's what you would like to see for the future of smart growth as a whole? Yes, and I, I think there's some indications we're moving in that direction. We certainly would work with the administration, the General Assembly, and any other interested stakeholder groups to do these refinements and make smart growth better and a little more adaptive to Maryland's great diversity moving forward. With that, we'll go ahead and end it there on smart growth. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll discuss the Chesapeake Bay total daily maximum load. Essentially, that is the pollution diet for the Chesapeake Bay. Talk about that more after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli here with Michael Sanderson and Les Knapp. Let's talk now, Les and Michael, about TMDL, Total Daily Maximum Load. Again, that is the pollution diet for the Chesapeake Bay. Les, this has gone on for a few years now. This came from the EPA, if I'm not mistaken. And we now have to start looking forward at with TMDLs and the health of the Bay as a whole. So, Les, give us a little bit of history on the TMDL or the Bay diet, how we got here, and what the future looks like for the, the health of the Bay and the TMDLs in particular. So the Chesapeake Bay total maximum daily load is, is an integral part to the Chesapeake Bay restoration efforts. And, and essentially, it was created in 2010 by the EPA in response to a lawsuit brought by the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. And I think it's fair to say it is a pollution diet, that it establishes uh, pollution goals for the bay based on a computer model that is continually being updated. And the bay states have to meet these pollution reduction targets by 2025. And essentially, we're talking about nutrients, phosphorus, and sediment. Is that right when we're talking about pollution in the Bay? Correct. For the Bay TMDL, you're looking at nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment as the key pollution reduction targets. And these are split up among four different sectors. You have your wastewater treatment plants. uh, You have your stormwater runoff. You have your septic systems and you have agriculture. These are the sources of these types of pollution and each of them are assigned different reduction loads. And what happens if you fail to meet these goals? That can lead to the EPA instituting various funding and regulatory penalties as well as being open to liability and lawsuits from different uh, environmental advocacy groups or other stakeholders. So have we seen any issues so far with the TMDL in Maryland or in other states that feed into the Chesapeake Bay? So the, the TMDL is really a work in progress. It, it's, there have been TMDLs and, and these pollution diets. The, the EPA has assigned them for many years, but always for stream, individual streams or rivers. It had never tried to do this on the scope of doing the entire Bay watershed. So quite an undertaking. It is quite an undertaking. So that means that all seven Bay watershed jurisdictions are involved with this. That means New York, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, and the District of Columbia all have these pollution reduction targets and all have to try to work together uh, to meet the overall targets of the Bay by 2025. So we're not talking about next week. We're talking about 2025. Yes. And what is going on right now with the TMDLs? I know we're looking at a few things that are going to affect the Bay as we move forward. So are folks putting their heads together now and saying we need to think about a few specific things as we look forward, as we continue to revise these targets? Yes. So basically the TMDL has been implemented in three phases, with each phase being governed by a watershed implementation plan, which was created by each state and sometimes their local governments. And that identifies how they're going to uh, meet their pollution reduction targets. Uh, Maryland is somewhat unique in that it assigns specific target reductions to its county governments. So in Maryland, county governments in particular have been at the forefront of Bay restoration efforts. Okay. We're now entering the third and final phase. Uh, So that means we're going to have a phase three whip that will basically track from now until 2025, the end of the, the, the TMDL. Uh, and, and how we will get from where we are now to meeting the final target goals. 
And Michael, we've talked about Conowingo in a recent episode. We've talked about Pennsylvania and New York. Is it fair to say that Maryland here is in a really good position with our TMDL as opposed to other states you know, that feed into the Bay? I think there's little doubt that Maryland is well in front of the pack of the, the whole region. The, the question is... Okay, what what do we get for that? If we end up with these big plumes of sediment and pollutants that come down, you know, that come down the the Susquehanna, they get trapped for some period of time behind the Conowingo and just get released every time there's a big storm. You know, what what can we do about that? Um, it's it's a little bit difficult to know where the enforcement would be through the EPA or what leverage do we have through a multi-state compact that we're, we've all signed on to. Uh, the governor's the lead of the interstate group, and that helps, but there's only so much political wherewithal for people in New York State to make sacrifices on behalf of the Chesapeake Bay. So, Les, we know that the Conowingo Dam is one of the areas that people will be looking at as we move forward that will have an effect on the bay. What are some other sources that will have an effect on the bay and on the TMDL as we move forward? So as as this final phase three WIP is being created, this plan on how we're going to get to meet our target reductions, I think there's four key areas that have to be addressed. And this will impact what Maryland counties and all of the Bay states and and local jurisdictions have to do. The first, as Michael noted, is the Conowingo Dam. Mm -hmm. That is a major issue. Basically, debris, sediments, nutrients come down the Susquehanna River and previously were trapped uh, in the Conowingo Dam Reservoir. Uh, However, uh, studies that were undertaken revealed that the dam's trapping capability to prevent that from just coming into the bay basically has reached its capacity much Mm -hmm. sooner than was previously anticipated. So now we have a huge additional amount of pollution that we've got to take into account and reduce by 2025. And that'll have an effect on phase three. That is correct. Now, what is going to happen is for the Conowingo, it's going to be treated almost like an eighth bay watershed state. So mm. it's going to have its own whip and its own targets that it will have to reduce. How that will ultimately look is still very much up in the air. One um, point of leverage that Maryland has as the owner of the dam, Exelon, is seeking to um, do a 50-year renewal of its license, federal license to run and operate the dam. And they have to get from Maryland a water quality certification. And as part of that, Maryland recently said in April, we will grant you that certification, but you, Exelon has to pay up to $170 million um, dollars a year to address the water pollution issues surrounding the dam. Exelon has challenged that both in court and administratively, and that's going to be a big bureaucratic mess to work out going forward. And yeah, I think Exelon is certainly willing to pay something, but we don't know what they're willing to pay, and I think they think that number is way too high. Well, and, and they're they're trying to generate electricity to sell in a competitive environment. Mm-hmm. So it's not simply a matter of should the ratepayers in some region be burdened with this cost. Right. Um. You know, in in Maryland, like most of the states around us, the generation of electricity is is a is a private you know competitive concern, no longer a regulated monopoly. So, Les, there has to be a human component as well as we look forward. Correct. There's a human component and several natural components to this. The second of the four key issues is growth and how you deal with water pollution from those areas, um, whether it's waste, expanded wastewater treatment plants, more development leading to more stormwater runoff, more septic systems, uh, how you deal with growth 
and that. And basically, that's going to be a challenge going forward for the 2025 goal. What the uh, Bay program has decided they're going to do is use the 2025 growth projections for local jurisdictions that had previously been factored into uh, the Bay model and the targets uh, to set uh, the target reductions. Now, that will get us to 2025. It's a big question of what we will have to do ongoing past 2025 to address future growth needs. There's this talk now that the EPA may not have as much oversight over states when it comes to coal plants. Does that, you know, just floating that idea that states will be able to control more of their own pollution rates and that the EPA won't have as big of an oversight, does that also maybe play into the Bay? Is there any concern that that could affect the health of the Chesapeake Bay as well? So that leads us to the third key area, which is air deposition. Right. And as has been said, uh, what goes up into the air must come down in the rain. And because of our geographic position, unfortunately, Maryland sees significant amount of air pollution coming from other states, particularly from the Midwest and a lot of coal plants out there. And the Maryland Department of the Environment has been aggressively seeking MD, uh, the EPA to try to require them to run their scrubbers during the summer months where most of this pollution is generated. Right, but it costs a lot of money to run those scrubbers. So I know some of these states have said no way. That is correct. So uh, I think Maryland is getting seriously considering suing the EPA to try to enforce something on this. Um, And that does have a direct impact on the health of the Bay. The third and final, uh, the fourth and final issue within the phase three whips, I think, is going to be climate change and how you factor that in. There's no question climate change does have an impact on the Bay. The science is still being developed into um, what that might mean for phosphorus, uh, nitrogen and sediment pollution. uh, But it is there. Basically, we have a couple of more years before we will have to integrate these types of pollution reduction targets caused by climate change and and what that will mean for us, uh, basically states will have to have something by 2023. So that gives us a few more years to better develop the science, better refine the computer model that creates these pollution reduction targets and and get a better handle on what we will actually have to do. Does that mean less if, if we, if we think there's a new element coming into this plan to react to climate change or, or, or whatever other external factors are, are are driving this, does that mean we may end up having to tighten the belt one more notch to continue the pollution diet analogy? Is that possible? I think that's very possible. Okay. And so obviously the health of the Bay is very important to Maryland. It's very important to this region. Les, what do you see as we move forward, as we approach 2025? Do you think, I mean, obviously you don't have a crystal ball in front of you and there are some players in this game that are unpredictable, but Do you think that states in this region will be able to come together and ultimately work together for the health of the Bay? They'll be able to solve the Conowingo Dam issue. Do you think Maryland's going to end up having to sue the EPA or having to potentially aggressively pursue other states to force them to contribute to the health of the Bay? I mean, what do you see here as an endpoint? I know we have a lot of players and it's very complicated. So it's basically 
um, akin to um, a football game in the fourth quarter, that the score is tightening, you've got to produce and, and get to the end game result. And that's where we are now. So I think there's going to be a flurry of activity in the next few years with this. And it's hard to predict how all of this will um, work out. I think from Maryland's perspective, we have been a leader in Bay Restoration efforts, and we are going to be close to meeting our goals if we don't meet them by the end of the 2025 period, assuming there are no additional nasty surprises from climate change numbers or other numbers that come out. Um, And that's also assuming the Conowingo issue is resolved. For some states, and particularly Pennsylvania, has been severely lagging behind their uh, pollution reduction efforts. EPA is going to either have to step up and and work with them to uh, get them to where they need to be, or else you will see litigation. Okay, so I mean, where does this land? I mean, I guess as as a as a practical matter, there's all these different moving parts, and it gets a little difficult to to bring it all together, but. We understand 2025 is sort of the EPA's target date for the bay as an impaired watershed to be, you know, to to have achieved some of these goals. So when when does this really come together for those of us who are doing policy stuff in Maryland? If you're, you know, if you're one of the people doing stormwater projects and, and other mitigation things in one of the counties in Maryland or you're a farmer or you're a developer and you're being asked to do these things, when when do we kind of put a bow on this? Is that going to be the year twenty twenty five, and and then we get a final analysis or review from EPA? I think, well, that's a possibility. I, I wouldn't put the bow on the box just yet at twenty twenty five. I mean, can you ever really put the bow on the box? I guess that's. I mean, that's my question. Is this seems like it's always going to be an issue? You know, twenty twenty five is the end of this portion, but I don't know how you can ever put a bow on the box with the bay. I would agree with that. I I think going forward, there's going to be ongoing issues that if we meet our goals in 2025, we will have to keep them there going forward. So the pollution diet, there will always be some form of a pollution diet for the Bay going forward now. Right. But but the hope is that if we can continue meeting those goals, that you won't have to increase the goals. We won't have to make them more stringent. The hope is that if we get to this point in 2025, we just need to maintain those goals moving forward. I think that's the broad hope. And a lot of this stuff ends up being driven by litigation. So we know that's in the background that if there are parties who are frustrated with it, with what EPA is doing, they sue EPA and ask for specific enforcement. Just like Maryland is thinking about doing this for air polluters elsewhere, there are other players who actually force the hand with this whole thing. This, the, you know, the, the declaration of the bay as an impaired watershed was a result of an external lawsuit itself. Right. So, so you never know what's going to happen with litigation. This all arose from litigation. So obviously that could be a major factor moving forward. We'll just have to see. All right, Les, thank you for joining us today. Any closing thoughts? As of this point, I think um, both of them will remain very active, so I hope to remain gainfully employed for the near future. (laughs) Based on on the attendance at those sessions at MicoCon, I think you're very safe. Folks are very interested in these subject areas, and it's very salient at this time. That'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. As always, tune in next week. We'll have a new episode for you. Again, please subscribe. Give us a like. For Les and Michael, this is Kevin Canale signing off. We will talk to you soon.